welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, March 5th, 2023. I'm your reader, Sharon Faldudo, on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. From the front page of today's Gazette, A Child Care Desert, Grassroots Movement Seeks Solutions in Mount Vernon and Lisbon, by Grace King of the Gazette. When the daycare center Jesse Thurn relied on to take care of her daughter Ari closed last summer, she was lucky enough to have family close if push came to shove and she needed childcare. Thurn was luckier still that a friend put her in touch with an in-home childcare provider who happened to have an opening. Thurn and her husband both work for small businesses, which means there's no one to work to cover for them if childcare falls through and they have to stay home with their children, she said. It's really impactful when you can't make it to work. Having a grandparent or someone you can rely on who is willing to help out is critical for us, Thurn said. Not all families have the resources in Mount Vernon and Lisbon, which have been labeled child care deserts, that Thurn has, she said. That's why the League of Women Voters, in partnership with the Iowa Women's Foundation, has been leading a grassroots movement to find child care solutions in the area. Deanne Cook, president and CEO of the Iowa Women's Foundation, said inadequate child care contributes to barriers for women, including self-sufficiency, housing insecurity, transportation, further education and training, and employment. The Iowa Women's Foundation funds and supports research and educates policymakers and community leaders on issues and solutions to help women and girls have equal opportunities for success. Solutions require communities recognizing there is a challenge with securing enough child care in the community and coming together from all walks of life. Parents, schools, employers, city and county policymakers to find solutions that work. One of those groups can't solve it alone, Cook said. The foundation is currently working in 56 communities, 49 counties, and 130 businesses in Iowa on child care solutions, Cook said. This includes the League of Women Voters in Mount Vernon, a group that is a powerhouse of child care champions, said Sherry Penny, Employment Engagement Director with the Iowa Women's Foundation. Colette Nakielski, who lives in Mount Vernon, joined the League of Women Voters to, be help, to help be a part of finding child care solutions. The solutions being explored include helping residents open in-home child care centers, opening a child care center in Mount Vernon, and partnering with local businesses to help mitigate some of the costs of child care and increase wages for child care employees. Part of creating solutions is changing the narrative of child care providers, who are sometimes seen as babysitters, Nakieleski said. They are business owners and people to be respected for what they do. It's hugely important and our society forgets how much is happening in those early years. Nakieleski's husband is a professor at Cornell College in Mount Vernon. She works as an administrative assistant at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Anamosa. Nakieleski works from home part-time and in the office a few mornings a week with her one-year-old daughter Charlotte by her side. Her son Finnegan, five, is in kindergarten at Washington Elementary School in Mount Vernon, and her other daughter Evelyn, three, goes to preschool at St. Patrick's School in Anamosa. Many families like hers have found ways to piecemeal childcare for their children between school, part-time daycare, and family, Nakieleski said. If people do have family in the area, they are being used to help with childcare, Nakieleski said. That's not the role of grandparents want to take, but they do because they're needed. The closest childcare centers are the Lisbon Early Childhood Center, which is part of the Lisbon Community School District, and Spartan Early Childhood Center in Solon, which is about 10 miles from Mount Vernon. Spartan opened in November 2019. Sean Reif, owner of Spartan Early Childhood Center, said there is a huge need for childcare in the area. Spartan, which opened in November 2019, serves 55 children aged 0 to 5 years old. It has a year-long waiting list, Rife said. 
Jane Carlson, who lives in Mount Vernon and is a member of the League of Women Voters, said while there are a lot of stumbling blocks, she is dedicated to the mission of finding child care solutions. We're determined not to let it die, she said. We're enthusiastic. We'll be successful. Also from the front page, after people on Medicaid die, some states seek repayment by Tony Lee's Kaiser Health News Perry. Fran Rule's family received a startling letter from the Iowa Department of Human Services four weeks after she died in January 2022. Dear family of Francis Rule, the letter began, we have been informed of the death of the above person and we wish to express our sincere condolences. The letter got right to the point. Iowa's Medicaid program had spent $226,611.35 for Rule's health care and the government was entitled to recoup that money from her estate, including nearly any assets she owned or had a share in. If a spouse or disabled child survived rule, the collection would be delayed until after their death, but the money would still be owed. The notice said the family had 30 days to respond. I said, what is this letter for? What is this? said rule's daughter, Jen Coughlin. It seemed bogus, but it was real. Federal law requires all states to have estate recovery programs, which seek reimbursements for spending under Medicaid, the joint federal and state health insurance program for people with low incomes or disabilities. The recovery efforts collect more than $700 million a year, according to a 2021 report from the Medicaid and SHIP Payment and Access Commission, or MACPAC, an agency that advises Congress. States have leeway to decide whom to bill and what type of assets to target. Some states collect very little. For example, Hawaii's Medicaid estate recovery program collected just $31,000 in 2019, according to the federal report. Iowa, with a population about twice Hawaii's, recovered more than $26 million that year, the report said. Iowa uses a private contractor to recoup money spent on Medicaid coverage for any participant who was 55 or older or was a resident of a long-term care facility when they died. Even if an Iowan used few health services, the government can bill their estate for what Medicaid spent on premiums for coverage from private insurers known as managed care organizations. Supporters say the clawback efforts help ensure people with significant wealth don't take advantage of Medicaid, a program that spends more than $700 billion a year nationally. Critics say families with resources, including lawyers, often find ways to shield their assets years ahead of time, leaving other families to bear the brunt of estate recoveries. For many, the family home is the most valuable asset, and heirs wind up selling it to settle the Medicaid bill. For the Rule family, that would be an 832-square-foot steel-sided house that Fran Rule and her husband Henry bought in 1964. It's in a modest neighborhood in Perry, a central Iowa town of 8,000 people. The county tax assessor estimates it's worth $81,470. Henry Rule, 83, wanted to leave the house to Coughlin, but since his wife was a joint owner, the Medicaid recovery program could claim half the value after his death. Fran Rule, a retired child care worker, was diagnosed with Lewy body dementia, a debilitating brain disorder. Instead of placing her in a nursing home, the family cared for her at home. A case manager from the Area Agency on Aging suggested in 2014 they look into the state's elderly waiver program to help pay expenses that weren't covered by Medicare and TRICARE, the military insurance Henry Rule earned during his Iowa National Guard career. Coughlin still has paperwork the family filled out. The form said the application was for people who wanted to get Title 19 or Medicaid, but then listed other programs within the medical assistance program, including the elderly waiver, which the form explained helps keep people at home and not in a nursing home. Coughlin said the family didn't realize the program was an offshoot of Medicaid, and the paperwork in her file did not clearly explain the government might seek reimbursement for properly paid benefits. 
Some of the Medicaid money went to Coughlin for helping care for her mother. She paid income taxes on those wages, and she said she likely would have declined to accept the money if she'd known the government would try to scoop it back after her mother died. Iowa Medicaid Director Elizabeth Matney said in recent years the state added clearer notices about the estate recovery program on forms people fill out when they apply for coverage. We do not like families or members being caught off guard, she said in an interview. I have a lot of sympathy for those people. Matney said her agency has considered changes to the estate recovery program, and she would not object if the federal government limited the practice. Iowa's Medicaid estate collections topped $30 million in fiscal 2022, but that represented a sliver of Medicaid spending in Iowa, which is over $6 billion a year. And more than half the money recouped goes back to the federal government, she said. Matney noted families can apply for hardship exemptions to reduce or delay recovery of money from estates. For example, she said, if doing any type of estate recovery would deny a family basic necessities like food, clothing, shelter, or medical care, we think about that. Sumo Group, a private company that runs Iowa's estate recovery program, reported that 40 hardship requests were granted in fiscal 2022 and 15 were denied. The Des Moines company reported collecting money from 3,893 estates that year. Its director, Ben Chapman, declined to comment to Kaiser Health Network. The 2021 Federal Advisory Report urged Congress to bar states from collecting from families with meager assets and to let states opt out of the effort altogether. The program mainly recovers from estates of modest size, suggesting that individuals with greater means find ways to circumvent estate recovery and raising concerns about equity, the report said. U.S. Representative Jan Schakowsky introduced a bill in 2022 that would end the programs. The Illinois Democrat said many families are caught unawares by Medicaid estate recovery notices. Their loved ones qualified for Medicaid participation, not realizing it would wind up costing their families later. It's really a devastating outcome in many cases, she said. Schakowsky noted that some states have tried to avoid the practice. West Virginia sued the federal government in an attempt to overturn the requirement that it collect against Medicaid recipients' estates. That challenge failed. Schakowsky's bill had no Republican co-sponsors and did not make it out of committee. But she hopes the proposal can move ahead since every member of Congress has constituents who could be affected. I think this is the beginning of a very worthy and doable fight. Supporters of a state recovery program say they provide an important safeguard against misuse of Medicaid. Mark Warshawski, an economist for the conservative American Enterprise Institute, argues that other states should follow Iowa's lead in aggressively recouping money from estates. Warshawski said many other states exclude assets that should be fair game for recovery, including tax-exempt retirement accounts such as 401ks. Those accounts make up the bulk of many seniors' assets, he said, and people should tap the balances to pay for health care before leaning on Medicaid. Warhoski said Medicaid is intended as a safety net for Americans who have little money. It's the absolute essence of the program, he said. Medicaid is welfare. People should not be able to shelter their wealth to qualify, he said. Instead, they should be encouraged to save for the possibility they'll need long-term care or to buy insurance to help cover the costs. Such insurance can be expensive and contain caveats that leave consumers unprotected, so most people decline to buy it. Warhoski said that's probably because people figure Medicaid will bail them out if need be. Eric Einhardt, a New York lawyer and board member of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, said Medicaid is the only major government program that seeks reimbursement from estates for properly paid benefits. Medicare, the giant federal health program for seniors, covers virtually everyone 65 or older, no matter how much money they have. It does not seek repayments from estates. There's a discrimination against what I call the wrong type of disease, Einhardt said. Medicare could spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on hospital treatment for a person with a serious heart problems or cancer, and no government representatives would try to recoup the money from the person's estate. 
but people with other conditions, such as dementia, often need extended nursing home care, which Medicare won't cover. Many such patients wind up on Medicaid, and their estates are billed. On a recent afternoon, Henry Rule and his daughter sat at his kitchen table in Iowa, going over the paperwork and wondering how it would all turn out. The family found some comfort in learning that the bill for Fran Rule's Medicaid expenses will be deferred as long as her husband will, is alive. He won't be kicked out of his house, and he knows his wife's half of their assets won't add up to anything near the $226,611.35 the government says it spent on her care. You can't get, how do you say it, he asked. Blood from a turnip, his daughter replied. That's right, he said with a chuckle, blood from a turnip. Turning to the Iowa Today and the Week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state. Under the heading In the News, Iowa Legislature emerges from Funnel Week. Iowa's first legislative funnel has come and gone, winnowing the field of bills that can be considered by lawmakers for the rest of the session. In a flurry of committee meetings, lawmakers advanced bills that regulate carbon pipelines, restrict the rights of LGBTQ students, open more jobs to Iowa teens, and regulate traffic cameras. Going forward, only bills that have passed out of committees can be considered by the legislature. There are some exceptions. Budget bills and tax bills are exempt, and leaders have options to revive bills that did not pass later in the session. Child labor laws protested. Iowa union workers flooded the state capitol last week, protesting a bill that would loosen the state's child labor laws and allow teenagers to work more jobs. The bill, which passed out of committees with amendments, is supported by Republican legislators as an aid to Iowa's workforce struggles. House and Senate diverge on pipelines. House lawmakers advanced a bill that would block CO2 pipelines from being approved unless they have 90% of their paths secured through voluntary easements and put a list of other restrictions on the projects. In the Senate, lawmakers blocked a pipeline restriction bill after pipeline companies and opponents alike opposed the measure, and it is unclear if they will take up the House proposal. Move to ban care for transgender minors. Iowa Republican lawmakers advanced bills in both the House and the Senate that would ban gender-affirming care for transgender minors, contradicting advice from medical experts and major medical institutions. The bills would ban puberty blockers, hormones, and surgeries as a treatment for gender dysphoria in minors whose gender identity does not align with their assigned sex at birth. Doctors and transgender children told lawmakers the law would lead to dangerous outcomes for Iowa's transgender youth. Students walk out to protest LGBTQ bills. Students from across Iowa walked out from 47 schools across the state to protest a deluge of bills that target transgender students and youth coming out of the Iowa capital. Republicans have advanced bills that ban transgender care for minors, stop trans students from using the restroom that identifies with their gender identity, and require schools to notify parents if their child expresses a different gender identity. New York Company to Administer Education Savings Account Program Iowa selected Odyssey, a New York-based company, to administer the multi-million dollar education savings account program Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law in January. Once the program is fully implemented, any student in the state will be able to take advantage of the state's full per-pupil dollars for use at a private school. Under the heading, they said, We're taking concerns from Iowans across the state and trying to figure out on how to have the best policies to make sure that it works as well as possible. Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley on bills that target LGBTQ students and issues in school. We have seen only politics from the majority party, not anything that's taking care of what everyday Iowans are asking for. Iowa House Minority Leader Jennifer Konst, Democrat Windsor Heights, on bills being advanced during the legislative session. Under the heading Odds and Ends, 2024 Watch, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former President Donald Trump will visit Iowa in the coming month. 
Though DeSantis has not announced a campaign for president, the two are considered the top contenders in the 2024 Republican presidential primary, which begins with the first in the nation Iowa Republican caucuses early next year. Abortion ban. A group of Republican lawmakers introduced a bill that would put a total ban on abortion in the state, but the bill did not advance, and Republican leaders said they would not consider further restrictions on abortion until the state Supreme Court decides on a bid from Governor Kim Reynolds to reinstate a six-week abortion ban. Year-round E-15. The Environmental Protection Agency last week approved the sale of E-15 year-round, a move requested by a bipartisan group of governors, including Governor Kim Reynolds. The rule will not take effect until summer 2024, and Reynolds, along with Iowa's U.S. Senators, urged the Biden administration to implement the rule earlier. Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Ban at Public Universities Iowa's public universities would be barred from spending money on diversity, equity, and inclusion officers under a bill lawmakers advanced last week that one lawmaker said dismantled the DEI bureaucracies at Iowa's public universities. Turning to the Insight page, we have a guest column from Kenna Wolbers. Kenna is a student at Waller Catholic High in Dubuque. This column first appeared in the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. She writes, LGBTQ youth are under attack in Iowa. That might sound like hyperbole, but with the recent bill making its way through the Iowa legislature, it would be illegal to announce, promote, or instruct on LGBTQ plus issues in kindergarten through eighth grade. This effectively silences any communication related to sexuality or gender in the classroom. What's worse, schools would also be required to communicate any information a student shares about their gender to their parents if it differs from their biological sex. Let me give you some perspective. I'm a gay teenager attending a Catholic high school in Iowa, ground zero for this war against LGBTQ kids. I've witnessed what spawns from limited education on gender and sexuality. I've become jaded to the relentless bullying, assault, and death threats brought upon my peers. I haven't met a gay or trans student who hasn't thought of harming themselves because of this treatment. Silence isn't saving children, it's killing them. Gay and trans people exist. We're not going away anytime soon, which is why hosting and open discussions about LGBTQ topics, particularly in middle school, is essential to developing healthier communities. When Governor Kim Reynolds and legislators peddle the idea of such discussions corrupting youth, they treat us like frogs ready for dissection. LGBTQ identity is more than clinical language and anatomy. When you talk about a husband and wife, you don't immediately jump to thinking about their sex life. That's inappropriate and invasive. Similarly, acknowledging our existence does not mean you have to explain the logistics of intercourse to a five-year-old. It's as simple as saying some girls love other girls or not all girls look the same. Middle school is often the first place we begin thinking about sex and gender. It's an incredibly vulnerable journey of self-discovery that needs proper guidance in a fact-based educational environment. I was fortunate enough to have parents to fill in the gaps of knowledge that Catholic sex ed could not, but I know others who weren't as lucky. Some of my friends have parents who've kicked them onto the streets for even questioning their gender identity. With this bill requiring teachers to report children's preferences concerning gender to their guardians, we run the risk of losing more kids to violent abuse and homelessness. What's the point? The answer, as history has often informed us, is fear. By nature, parents agonize over the best choices for their children, leaving them vulnerable to bigoted language from manipulative people seeking personal gain. They'll fall back on old stereotypes and claim to be protecting your children from corruption. They'll deliver justice. They'll keep your kids safe. It's easier to hate than to learn, to hear a politician say a certain group is indoctrinating children and become consumed by fearful speculation. People like Kim Reynolds know this and use it to fuel their careers. I, too, have felt how intoxicating it is to unleash all your anxieties onto someone else. 
But in the aftermath of that high, there comes the crushing realization that you have hurt another human being. Is this the way we want to live? I am not a politician with some sinister agenda. I'm not a leftist who wants to brainwash your kids. I am a teenager asking you, the reader, to try. Try learning about the experiences of trans youth. Try talking to acquaintances who are gay, bi, or trans. Try advocating for their rights. I hope you find we're more than a scary statistic that we're quite possibly on the same side. Next, Althea Cole, in her Tua Candid World column, writes, Denied care at U of I hospitals. I was ordered to leave the building and escorted out by Coralville police. This past Tuesday, I drove to Coralville for an appointment at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics Iowa River Landing Facility. I was to see my rheumatologist, the physician who has treated me for severe idiopathic arthritis for 23 years, for a very important visit. But instead of being checked in at the front desk, I was ordered to leave the building and escorted out by Coralville police. The reason, I refused to wear a mask or face shield. It was not out of obstinacy. I had presented a letter from my primary care physician stating that my health issues prevented me from tolerating a facial covering. UIHC staff refused to even look at it. I last wrote about mask mandates in hospitals in September 2022. While I mentioned my personal connection to the issue, my overall objective was to explore possible conflicts with receiving care for anyone who cannot tolerate a mask. Issues such as anxiety, headaches, sensory disorders, skin conditions, and more can make masking such a miserable experience that wearing one is simply not an option, especially in light of declining COVID case numbers and waning hospital admissions. I am one who cannot tolerate a face mask. Idiopathic arthritis has gone after my spine, causing symptoms that resulted in a significant new diagnosis last May. Shortly before, I'd begun experiencing debilitating headaches whenever I wore a face mask, despite being able to wear them for almost two years prior. Headaches derail my entire day, leaving me nauseated and weak, unable to focus on work. They're mitigated only by sleep and heavy painkillers that render me unable to safely drive. For me, mask mandates as a hindrance to care have gone from being a hypothetical concept to a devastating reality. When I first pleaded with a check-in staff in July 2022 not to be made to wear a mask, the clerk told me I would need an exemption letter from my primary care provider. But staff at the UIHC Family Care Clinic informed me that my primary care provider, who I'd seen for five years and quite liked, had already refused to issue such a letter without any consultation at all, let alone a discussion of my symptoms. That same month, I had a follow-up with a foot surgeon to check on my 12-year-old ankle replacement. Without even greeting me as he entered the room, the physician assistant looked at me and said, you're not going to wear a mask? When I shook my head, the PA abruptly turned and said, I'm not seeing you, and murmured something about his upcoming vacation as he walked away. I continued with the attending surgeon, but the exchange with the PA left me upset. She is not interested in having a prolonged discussion about her ankle today as she is in some distress over the hospital mask policy, reads the clinic note. I saw my neurosurgeon the same day I filed my September mask mandate column. He was cold and impacetic unsympathetic about my aversion to masking and threatened to call security if I didn't wear one. Too exhausted to argue with no hope of prevailing, I opted for the only exception the UIHC officially offers to its mask mandate, a face shield which has never been approved or recommended by the CDC to protect against COVID on its own. The face shield was a sheet of plastic with a foam cushion for the forehead and an elastic headband to secure it in place. The inside of it reflected my own movement in a distorted fashion, much like a funhouse mirror, causing me to become disoriented and unable to walk without assistance. The pressure on my forehead from the elastic triggered a worse headache than a mask ever had. Feeling defeated, I popped an extra dose of prescription painkillers and left with a searing headache. There were a few physicians on my care team who were willing to see me without a face covering, for which I remain grateful, 
but after my primary care provider denied a mask's exemption letter without so much as a consultation, I realized that my problems with my care at UIHC weren't limited to a lack of tolerance for face coverings. They stemmed from a loss of trust in my primary care provider, in my neurosurgeon, and in the hospital administrators who were clearly tired of my angry feedback. For the first time in three decades, the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics no longer seemed to be the world-class facility I loved. While moving all my specialty care elsewhere would be unwise, I moved my primary care to Unity Point in December. After several appointments and thorough discussions, my new provider furnished me with a letter that outlined why I couldn't tolerate a face covering. The letter was accepted by front desk clerks at the UIHC main hospital for a January appointment with a wrist surgeon who had already agreed to see me without a mask. Because the Unity Point letter had been accepted by hospital staff, I was shocked and angry when I called the rheumatology clinic the day before my Tuesday appointment to be told that it wouldn't be accepted and I'd be required to comply with UIHC mask rules. The only accommodation available was a telehealth visit, which would have made necessary physical examinations impossible. Blood pressure, pulse, and oxygen levels are called vital signs for a reason. Nine years ago, it was discovering during a vitals check at a routine neurosurgery appointment that I was experiencing blood pressure urgency that required immediate treatment. I declined the telehealth option and informed the rheumatology clinic that I would attend in person and present my Unity Point letter. When I arrived at the clinic, I declined a mask. Clinic staff refused to look at the exemption letter. Security informed me that my appointment was now canceled and I could either leave or be removed by police. Hoping that they were bluffing, I insisted that I would not leave until I'd seen my rheumatologist and sat in the corner of the large waiting area. After 45 minutes, two Coralville police officers arrived to find the quiet, nonviolent, disabled, and unmasked patient they'd been asked to remove. Polite and friendly, they walked me to my car. I apologized for taking their time, and they assured me that I wasn't being issued any citations. Ironically, had the clinic accepted my exemption letter and continued my, with my appointment, I possibly would have spent less time in the area unmasked than I did while waiting for the police. At this time, UI Healthcare requires all staff, patients, and visitors to wear a face mask while they are in our patient care facilities, said a spokesperson from the UIHC after I reached out following the incident. However, with recent decreases in COVID-19 and other respiratory viruses in our community, we are currently in the process of reviewing and updating our safety protocols, including mask requirements. In accordance with this commitment to safety, disruptive or aggressive behavior is not tolerated in UI healthcare facilities. We expect patients and visitors to be considerate and respectful to our staff and other patients. As needed, we partner with our safety and security team and local law enforcement to address these concerns. The statement doesn't address the concerns of patients who cannot tolerate face covering but need in-person care. For questions about any possible exemptions, I was referred to the UIHC Office of the Patient Experience. As of my deadline, my calls and emails have not received a response. I was, however, contacted by a behavioral assessment consultant with the University of Iowa Threat Assessment and Care Program who wanted to speak with me as a human to resolve the issue. The information provided by the consultant about mask exemption letters was contradictory to both what the rheumatology clinic stated and the check-in staff at the main hospital. It remains to be seen how my issues as a patient will play out. As a writer, I wonder if others are affected by rigid masking rules. I hope I am the only one. I wouldn't wish the experience I've had on anyone in need of care. My thoughts remain similar to those I shared back in September. If the UIHC's mask mandate exists to protect patients, it's worth considering whether that same mandate in fact causes them harm. And if rigid enforcement is harming others like it harmed me, maybe they should make some changes. Todd Dorman, in his 24-hour Dorman column, writes, Decency and compassion leave the Golden Dome. Iowa, you make me cringe. I've just watched the Republican-controlled Iowa legislature advance an agenda using the party's almost total control of political power in this state to attack transgender kids. 
a vulnerable minority which already faces marginalization, bullying, and higher rates of suicide and homelessness is being punched around by the so-called leaders of this state. Decency and compassion have left the Golden Dome of Wisdom. Hundreds of students marched this week in opposition to these bills. Republicans don't care. I've witnessed many instances of legislative malpractice during my years covering and closely watching state government in Iowa, but this is the worst I've seen. Republicans cast aside any notion of responsible governing to stoke fires of religious fanaticism they ignited with no regard for the consequences. For a state that prides itself on a record of protecting civil rights, these are dark days. History will not look kindly on the perpetrators of this hateful agenda, nor on those who sat silently by as it happened. So yeah, as a native Iowan, I'm beyond disgusted. Is this what Iowa voters wanted when they elected a Republican governor and increased GOP majorities in the legislature? If yes, shame on you. If not, what are you going to do about it? A slew of harmful anti-LGBTQ plus bills survived a legislative deadline at the end of funnel week, keeping them alive for likely passage. There are bills banning gender-affirming health care for transgender kids, even with the consent of parents. Another bill advanced that would bar transgender kids from using a bathroom or locker room corresponding with their gender identity. Of course, there was Governor Kim Reynolds' education bill, mainly teaching us how far she'll go to burnish her red state superstar credentials. Her bill would make it easier to banish books from school library shelves if Moms for Liberty object to their content and place them on a blacklist accessible only with parental permission. No curriculum can address gender identity in elementary grades, sending a clear signal that transgender Iowans are somehow a problem or a threat that needs to be hidden. In a particularly cruel section of the bill, if a school employee finds out a student is transitioning and wants to use a new name and pronouns, the school must inform the state's parent, the student's parents. And if the student expresses fear of what might happen if parents are told, the school must notify the Department of Health and Human Services to investigate. So a kid's choice is to be outed before they're ready or have the state investigate their family. No adult can be trusted, best just to remain in the shadows, which is what Republicans want. Experts lined up in recent weeks to warn lawmakers that these measures would profoundly harm transgender kids, exacerbating their isolation, higher rates of suicidal thoughts, and higher potential for homelessness. Lawmakers heard from Katie Imborek, co-director of the University of Iowa Healthcare's LGBTQ clinic, and Dave Williams, chief medical officer at Unity Point Health, on the medical care provided to transgender youth. They told lawmakers that a ban on such care would ignore guidance from the American Medical Association, the American Pediatric Association, and the American Association of Psychiatrists. They told lawmakers gender-affirming care isn't done without parental consent, surgery on minors is rare, and the care helps with emotional and behavioral issues, depression, and thoughts of suicide. Lawmakers were told of the reams of research showing that the real safety threat in bathrooms and locker rooms is for transgender students forced to use facilities corresponding with their gender at birth. They're the ones who face a higher risk of sexual assault and violence. Republicans ignored it all. Deaf ears and sneers. Instead, they stuck with a campaign of fabricated fear that has agitated an outraged minority while they reap the political spoils. Maybe you think this doesn't affect you, so who cares? But consider for a moment the speed at which Republicans were able to transform transgender kids into public enemy number one. In roughly one election cycle, these kids went from being students just trying to live their lives and be supported to become a target of derision by a governor, a sitting member of Congress, the legislative majority, and a former vice president. Public schools went from being prized institutions in Iowa to dens of liberal indoctrination in the wild imaginations of hard-right lawmakers. Teachers went from respected to reviled enemies, thanks to concocted claims of sinister agendas. This is the stuff of authoritarian regimes. Attack the other, divide us with fictions. 
Sure, anti-transgender bills have been filed in the past. Last year, the governor signed a law banning transgender girls from girls and women's sports. But we've never seen an onslaught like the one unleashed this session with frightening ferocity. Republicans have built a highly efficient political machine fueled by fear. When it's done crushing the rights of transgender kids, who will be its next target? Who will get tossed into the wood chipper of righteous outrage? There always has to be an object of outrage. A constitutional amendment was filed that would, if approved by lawmakers and voters, overturn marriage equality. It's unlikely to move this year, but never say never. Republicans already are targeting higher education, advancing legislation that would prohibit state universities from spending state money on money on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Yelling woke enough times makes it seem like a great idea. If Reynolds continues to follow Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' playbook, we could see the culture wars overwhelm higher education in Iowa. Maybe they'll come after the journalists. Always a popular Republican target. Of course, we know women's reproductive rights are hanging by a thread likely to be severed. The attack on public schools isn't going to end with this session's blitzkrieg. A Democratic legislator recently told my 21-year-old daughter that if she has the ways and means to leave Iowa, that's why she must stay. We have to think of the Iowans who can't leave and must endure this agenda. Unless voters look over this landscape and clearly see the dangerous ways Republicans are wielding vast power and strike back, or at least stand up, this isn't going to end. Turning to the community letters and the editorial cartoon, the editorial cartoonist from Mike Lukovich, syndicated cartoonist distributed by Creators Syndicate. We have a child holding a book in front of a caricature of an elephant in a suit. The child's book is entitled Truth, Knowledge, Facts, and Tolerance. The elephant with an angry look on his face and his hands out in a stop motion says, Stop aiming that at me. The first letter from today is from Kristen E. Hendricks of Marion, grateful for paper carriers. I, too, had trouble with my newspaper delivery in Marion when I first moved here. What the Gazette did not tell me about delivery is they had no one to deliver my paper. I, too, called and complained, and the Gazette apologized. Then I found out the guy delivering my paper was graciously adding me and others on my streets to his delivery route because there was no one assigned to our area. I learned this from a friend who also delivered for the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. With that information in hand, I started thanking my delivery person instead of calling the Gazette to complain. I now have an excellent woman, Barb, delivering my paper every day at 4.30 a.m., and I am grateful. Kristen E. Hendricks of Marion. Next, Bill Emanuel of Cedar Rapids writes, U.S. can be the good guys in Ukraine. While I was in the dentist's office a while back, I was talking to an older fellow who was bemoaning the fact that President Joe Biden had just approved $31 billion in aid to Ukraine. I said, well, I don't have a good understanding of what a billion of anything is. I was thinking about this the other day, and my thoughts were this. If we could go back in time and prevent Adolf Hitler or many other murderous individuals who were responsible for the inhumane acts that killed millions of people, both of their own country and of ours, how much would be too much? The obvious answer is that no amount of money would be too much. The lives of the people and the lives of the brave men and women who inevitably defeated them and the misery they caused were beyond any monetary value. I am proud of Biden for his unwavering support of the people of Ukraine and the right to freedom from tyranny. We have a chance to be the good guys again. God bless America. Bill Emanuel of Cedar Rapids. Next, Michael Malley of Kelowna writes, When did it become wrong to love America? When did it become wrong to love America? When did it become wrong to speak well of it? When did it become right to speak only of its faults? There was a time when loving this nation was normal, not because of its sins were hidden or denied, we actually learned about them in public schools. Rather, America was judged in comparison with other nations. Simple comparisons like, why are people killed trying to escape that country while others are risking their lives to enter ours? Or why do we have protected rights in our constitution to speak our minds while people under communism are imprisoned or killed for doing so? 
And what nation has provided more freedom, more prosperity for more people than America? Which one? Which one? Last question. Why isn't their border being crashed? Michael Malley of Kelowna. John Carver of Decorah writes political leaders could eliminate hunger. No one in this country should go hungry. No one. Why are legislators finding ways to cut food allowances for those in need? Imagine hunger without any recourse. Food is our most basic need, and not helping meet the need is criminal. When was the last time you faced real hunger? Probably never, let alone being faced with starvation. The United States has the resources to eliminate hunger. There have been attempts to fix this in the past and failed. Now is the time to make sure hunger is a thing of the past. This should be on all political platforms. John Carver of Decorah. Betty Forbes of Lone Tree writes Gazette is best part of the day. Thank you so much for your paper. I am 89 years old, up at 4.30 or 5 a.m. and the greatest part of my day, a cup of coffee and my paper. I so enjoy the crossword, Sudoku, and crypto quote. I'm happy that the crossword is not overly challenging. I also have a great delivery lady, Hannah, and I try to tip her generously at Christmas time. My thanks to all. Betty Forbes of Lone Tree. And the final letter is from Sonny Hoffman of Aurora. What's wrong with respect and integrity? So what's wrong with respect and integrity? How come there is not much of these in our culture today? Today's culture doesn't know the meaning of those words, respect and integrity. I come from a generation that knows them and practices them. What we teach and show our children will determine what the next generation will be like. We need to teach and show by example what respect and integrity mean, not that they can have a sex change or what kind of sex partner they will have. That can come after graduation. Teach a class on respect and integrity first. Make it required. What's wrong with requiring a class in respect and integrity every year of a student's life? You people reading this, wake up, get involved. Doesn't that make sense? So what's wrong with respect and integrity? Sonny Hoffman of Aurora. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, March 5th, 2023 on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. I'm your reader, Sharon Faldudo, and we turn to today's obituaries. In the other notices, Kimberly Reed of Alburnett, age 59, died Thursday, March 2nd. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion Handling Arrangements. And Daniel McGivern, age 72, of Iowa City, died Wednesday, March 1st. Lensing Funeral and Cremation of Iowa City Handling Arrangements. Anthony Driscoll, known as Tony of Cedar Rapids, passed away Sunday, February 26th at Lakeside Hospital due to a lengthy illness. Private burial will take place at St. Joseph Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Tony recently retired from the University of Nebraska IT Department. Tony especially enjoyed time with his family. He was a huge fan of college football and followed the Nebraska Cornhusker and Iowa Hawkeye football teams. He liked playing cards, especially a good game of euchre, visiting casinos, and deep-sea fishing. Richard D. Snyder, known as Rick of Bentley Villages, Naples, Florida, and Cedar Rapids, passed away February 26th. Dick was involved in many civic organizations, including the Chicken Little Chapter of the Flat Earth Society, and served faithfully in many capacities at the First Presbyterian Church of Marion. Dick was also a lover of early jazz like Benny Goodman, Ella Fitzgerald, and Billie Holiday, and he found time to collect stamps and coins, take Spanish lessons, research family history, play golf, and was a faithful member of Team Egg in the Register's annual Great Bicycle Ride Across Iowa. A celebration of life will be held at 2 p.m. March 15th at First Presbyterian Church, 9751 Bonita Road Southeast in Bonita Springs, Florida. Sandra K. Emerson, age 73, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Thursday, March 2nd, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Visitation will be from 10 to 11 a.m. Thursday, March 9th, at Bross Chapel in the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, located at 2121 Bowling Street Southwest. Celebration of Life services will begin at 11 a.m. Thursday, March 9th, at Bross Chapel. 
burial will be in Cedar Memorial Cemetery. Ruth Majoris of Cedar Rapids died on February 24th at the age of 101. An evening visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Friday, March 10th at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. A visitation will take place at 9.30 a.m. Saturday, March 11th at St. Joseph Church in Marion, followed by a funeral mass at 10 a.m. Burial will follow at Oakshade Cemetery in Marion. Ruth was a teacher, parent, and active volunteer at church, school, and the League of Women Voters, and co-founder of the Heralders Catholic Singles Group. She traveled the world extensively in her later years, visiting five of the seven continents with her husband. Judith Gruber, known as Anne, age 81, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on March 2nd at the Views of Marion. In agreement with Anne's wishes, cremation has taken place. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting the family. Anne worked for 10 years as an itinerant vision teacher in Charleston, South Carolina, then went on to work for the Vinton School for the Visually Impaired and Preschool for the Davenport School District in Iowa. Anne was a member of the People's Unitarian Universalist Church in Cedar Rapids. She also enjoyed making dolls, doing crossword puzzles, listening to classical music, and participating in book clubs. William Deacon Severa, age 96, of Cedar Rapids, died February 23rd at Methwick Community. A gathering service will begin at 1 p.m. Wednesday, March 15th, with a time of visitation following through 3 p.m. at Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Service in Cedar Rapids. Bill served in the U.S. Army in the Pacific in 1944. He then worked at Cook Electric in the Chicago area and lived in Evanston. In Cedar Rapids, he had a varied professional life. He was a bookkeeper for his uncle George's Wilhelm's Metal Crafters. He then worked at Hedges Realty and Morris Plan while completing work on his accounting degree. Bill began his true calling when his son's Emerald Knights Drum and Bugle Corps needed more charter bus drivers, maintaining that position through the 1983 season. He drove for charter coaches, its successor Tri-State Tours, and then CPO travel until he retired from bus driving in the late 1990s. Connie Sue Long, born Connie Sue Bowers, age 68, passed away at her home in Robbins on Tuesday, February 28th, surrounded by her loving family. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Connie enjoyed photography, weaving, camping, and traveling, especially to Italy. Erin Mary Warden, age 63, of Marion, passed away February 20th at her home. Celebration of Life will be held from 1 to 5 p.m. Saturday, March 11th at the Marion American Legion. Anurment will be at a later date at Oakland Cemetery in Manchester, Iowa. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting the family. Erin worked at Agon before moving to the Strelner Financial Agency in Cedar Rapids as a financial advisor. Erin was a top five female advisor with the Collective Financial Group. She was a member of the NIFA, National Association of Insurance and Financial Advisors, and the Fortuners Philanthropy Group. Curtis Bailey, known as Kurt of Springville, was united with his lord after a short illness on March 2nd. He was born December 1st, 1961. He was a caretaker for Camp Hitaga and worked in construction and on the family farm. He was independent and self-sufficient, yet always willing to stop everything anytime to help family, friends, and neighbors. There will be a celebration of life at a later date. Gregory Allen Shank, age 50 of Marion, passed away unexpectedly by his own hand on February 9th. A celebration of life service will be held on Saturday, March 18th from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Anniette Christian Church. 
433 Cross Road in Marion with Pastor Jason Ishmael officiating. He worked at Hy-Vee, Target, and Best Buy, where his career took him to Iowa, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. Most recently, Greg lived in Marion, where he worked for Quality Painting, and then with his partner Kim Vicunis, started KG Painting to focus on quality workmanship and service to others. Glenda Lee Denler, age 68, of rural El Cater, passed away peacefully at Mercy One Hospital Wednesday, February 22nd. She received her associate's degree in fashion merchandising from Kirkwood. She was a homemaker and helped her husband on the farm when needed, but put most of her time to raising their children. When they were older, Glenda worked outside the home at Land's End. In 2005, she began work as a paraeducator for Central Community School at the elementary level. Glenda was a Sunday school teacher, brownie and Girl Scout leader, volunteered at school, was a couple, was in a couple and women's bowling league, and was actively involved in her children's families. Sharon K. Libby, age 74, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully March 2nd. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. She was a loving wife, mom, grandmother, and great-grandmother. Deborah Ann Frick of Williamsburg, Michigan, known as Deb, age 67, passed away on February 25th. She was born in Creston, Iowa. She was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 2008. She used her diagnosis as a motivation to raise awareness and help treat and research these types of cancers. She was a board member and helped found the Michigan Ovarian Cancer Alliance. Her devotion to the field reached beyond her retirement from Hurley Medical Center in 2012. She developed support groups for fellow ovarian cancer survivors in Flint and Northern Michigan. A celebration of Deb's amazing life will take place on Saturday, June 24th, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. in the gardens at Reynolds Jonkoff Funeral Home. Victor August Barnholt, known as Vic, age 79, of Swisher, passed away at his home. He was a 26-year consecutive member of the Swisher American Legion Post 671, as well as a member of the VFW. He served in Vietnam. He loved his life in Swisher and enjoyed being out in the yard or tinkering in his garage and on various working projects. He also retired from Highway Equipment Company as many years as an inventory control manager and then took a job at Kirkwood Community College in the Floriculture Department where he worked for another 17 years, finally retiring for good in 2012. Eric Studer of Vinton, the Studer and Stodola family, sorrowfully announced the passing of their son, fiancé, brother, and uncle, Eric Studer. Eric, age 26, died Wednesday, March 1st. Eric invested his heart into everything he did, whether representing Vinton Shellsburg on the football field, working in the woods on his family's property, or playing disc golf with friends. He loved music, sports, the beauty of nature, and working with his hands. A celebration of Eric's life will be scheduled at a later date. Douglas William Welter, known as Doug, of Vinton, age 65, passed away on Wednesday, March 1st, at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids. Graveside services will be held at Garden of Memories Cemetery in Waterloo at a later date. He lived most of his life in Waterloo, moving to Vinton in 2009. He had recently moved to Cedar Rapids. In his leisure time, Doug enjoyed taking walks and especially fishing. And Gerald L. Nicola, known as Jake of Elberon, age 65, passed away after a courageous seven-year battle with cancer on February 23rd at the Oldorf Hospice House in Hiawatha. A celebration of life will take place from 11 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Saturday, March 11th at the CSA Hall in Vining, Iowa, with private burial at Stayskill Cemetery in Chelsea.
Turning to the sports page, Big Ten's women basketball semifinal, Iowa 89, Maryland 84, in an article entitled Gabby Gabby Hay by John Stepp of the Gazette in Minneapolis. Lisa Bluter was not kidding earlier in the week when she said Iowa would be more ready next time against Maryland after last week's blowout loss. The second-seeded Hawkeyes pulled off an 89-84 win against third-seeded Maryland last night to advance to the Big Ten tournament title game. Caitlin Clark, as usual, led the Hawkeyes in scoring with 22 points. Caitlin was Caitlin, Iowa coach Lisa Bluter said. And Monica Cisnano, also as usual, was in double figures with 15 points. But Iowa's role players, most notably guard Gabby Marshall, were the difference makers Saturday. Marshall hit seven three-pointers, which often provided critical momentum swings, and finished with 21 points. I've gotten my confidence back, Marshall said. Seeing all those shots go in is just a great feeling. McKenna Warnock had 21 points on a 6 of 12 shooting. Kate Martin had 10 points, 9 rebounds, and 7 assists, moving Iowa to 7-1 this season when Martin scores at least 10 points. All five starters were in double figures. That's a dream to be on a team like that, Warnock said. I think it will help us a lot going forward. Clark said the balanced scoring was especially important against Maryland's box-and-one defense. You can take away me and Monica, Clark said, but when the other three play like they did and we have people coming off the bench and contributing, there's only so much you can do defensively. The Hawkeyes hung on to the lead for 38 out of 40 minutes, but Saturday's win was no easy feat. Maryland tied the game at 79-79 with two minutes left and had another chance to tie it in the final minute. An offensive foul called on Clark, followed by a Lavender Briggs three, cut the Hawkeyes' lead to 85-84. After two free throws by Warnock, Maryland guard Abby Myers' three-point attempt came up short. Warnock then hit another two free throws to remove any doubt. Iowa led by as many as 12 in the first half, but Maryland trimmed the lead to five by halftime. The Hawkeyes never led by more than three possessions in the second half. The win was 11 days after Iowa lost by 28 to that same Maryland team. We took that personal, Marshall said. This was like a revenge game for us, so we came out locked in, ready from the beginning. The Hawkeyes, again, had strong fan support at the Target Center. We're saying it's Carver North, Bluter said. Attendance for Saturday's semifinals game was 9,375, 42 short of a Big Ten tournament record, and the vast majority of fans in the second game were Iowa fans. Iowa will seek its second consecutive Big Ten tournament title today at 4 p.m. against number 4 seeded Ohio State, which upset top-seeded Indiana in the other semifinal, 79-75. The Hawkeyes won the regular season battle 83-72. It is the third consecutive year that Iowa has gone to the Big Ten Tournament Championship. It's all I know, said Clark, a third-year guard. And finally, the time machine, a look back at the people, places, and events in eastern Iowa, the Titanic's Iowa Connections. Stories of heartbreak and survival filled the Gazette for days after Liner sank in 1912. By Diane Langton, correspondent. When the Titanic sank April 15, 1912, more than 1,500 people perished, including Iowans and people with ties to the state. The stories of heartbreak and survival filled the gazettes for weeks after the disaster. Among the first reports received April 16th was that Walter Douglas, a wealthy Cedar Rapids and Minneapolis businessman, and his wife Mahala were aboard the ocean liner on its maiden voyage from Southampton, England, to New York City. They had been abroad to buy furniture and fixtures for their new home on Lake Minnetonka in Minnesota. The report said they were undoubtedly all right, but that was not the case. Mahala was among those rescued after her husband put her in lifeboat, too, and said he would follow as soon as all the women and children were off the ship. Douglas, 50, was among those who perished. His body was recovered with burial at Oak Hill Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. 
Gunnar Tinglin, who arrived in Burlington in southeast Iowa on April 25th, was one of the third-class passengers who survived by climbing aboard one of the ship's collapsible rafts. Those on the raft had to stand and had to knock others off who were trying to climb on, Tinglin said. It meant the death of us all should they have swamped our raft in overloading it, he said. The people began to die on the raft rapidly, and one big Swede was kept busy throwing bodies into the sea. Several men swimming in the water near us were allowed to take the places of the dead men. Carrie Too Good Chaffee, a native of Manchester in northeast Iowa, was returning from Europe with her husband Herbert, a wealthy North Dakota farmer, so they could be home for the birth of a grandchild. I have not given up hope that my husband was saved in some way. I simply cannot lose hope, Carrie Chaffee said. Her husband's body was never found. Bertha Lehman, a second-class passenger, was traveling from Bern, Switzerland, to her sister's home east of Central City. She arrived on deck as the last lifeboat was about to be lowered. She was put on the boat with eight other women. The boat would hold about 50 people, and the rest were all men, Mr. Ismay being one of them, the Gazette reported, noting that Ismay was chairman of the White Star Line, owner of the Titanic. They rowed a few feet from the ship when they came across another boat which had been overturned with 40 men clinging to its sides. These men were all taken into the boat. The extra weight put the edge of the lifeboat close to the waterline. Frank Lefebvre had immigrated to Mystic in south-central Iowa with his oldest son to work the coal mines and earn ocean passage for the rest of his family. He learned April 20th that his wife and four small children had been on the Titanic. When Lefebvre heard that his two boys, ages two and four, had been rescued, he headed to New York, hoping they were his sons. They were not, meaning Lefebvre had lost five family members. Later, Lefebvre and his girlfriend were charged with violating immigration laws and deported. Artist Francis Millette, nephew of Mrs. C.A. Cumming, wife of the head of the Fine Arts Department at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, was lost. But the Reverend William Ernest Carter of Philadelphia, a cousin of the wife of Johnson County Attorney W.J. McDonald, was among those who were rescued. Albert Caldwell and his wife and baby son were second-class passengers. Caldwell placed his family on lifeboat 13. It wasn't full. Mrs. Caldwell begged the man in charge of the boat to allow her husband to take a seat. She was the only woman on the boat, and no one else was waiting to board. The crewman allowed it. After hours on the ocean, the Caldwells were picked up by the RMS Carpathia, a canard ship that rescued Titanic passengers from lifeboats and took them to New York City. Two years later, Caldwell was principal of the high school in Ames. Ernest Tomlin, 23, of London, had written two of his fellow students at Drake University, saying he would soon be back in Des Moines and would sail from Southampton on April 10th. The Titanic was the only ship to leave Southampton that day. Tomlin's name was found on the list of the ship's third-class passengers. His body was recovered and buried at sea. A native of Denmark, Louis Mikkelsen, was a fireman aboard the Titanic. When he heard the captain's last order, you have all done your duty, it's every man for himself now, Mickelson jumped into the ocean and made his way to a raft. He eventually found his way to Cedar Rapids and worked for the Municipal Waterworks until he retired in 1955. Emil Wahlberg, an engineer and University of Iowa graduate, survived and built the Beacon Tower at Cape Race, Newfoundland, the nearest point to the wreck of the Titanic. And Carlos Hurd, a native of Cherokee County in northwest Iowa, and his wife Catherine were passengers aboard the Carpathia, which rescued 706 survivors. 706 Titanic survivors. A reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch heard, then 36, broke first stories of the disaster for his newspaper. And that brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, March 5th, 2023. I have been your reader, Sharon Feldudo, reading to you from my kitchen table with occasional interruptions from my dog. 
Remember that you can access a recording of this or any other recording from IRIS on our website, iowaradioreading.org. We welcome your comments, and thank you for listening.